Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside, the podcast that explores new perspectives beyond the familiar. I am a CPG innovator, and with this show, I'm seeking a fresh take on business topics with some of the most influential and original thinkers. If you find yourself curiously peeking over the fence at what is happening outside your market, industry, or field of knowledge, then this show will help you to explore more of that. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Looking Outside. As some of you know, I started the show with the express desire of sharing differentiated thinking, counterintuitive thinking, disruptive thinking in a way that's positive and to spark reflection on how that can be beneficial for us. You know, when someone else is doing that and has a reputation of doing that exactly with a big audience doing it much better than I do, and they agree to come on your show, it's tremendously exciting. And I'm so happy to say that today we're talking about all of those wonderful things and looking outside rethinking with Tom Goodwin. Hey, Tom. Hello. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. I'm absolutely honored. So let's maybe kick off with you telling the audience a little about yourself. I came into the industry with a degree in architecture, and it's interesting because a lot of the architectural process and structure is quite similar to advertising. I've got a passion for technology and how it's changing the world. And in particular, I also have a a passion for people and what it's like to be a normal human being. And I guess I try to think about how technology is changing our lives and what it means and what it doesn't mean. I don't think I'm particularly weird or different, but it does appear that I am because when I have feelings, I sort of write about them. And when I write things, people quite like it. So it ended up as an author and presenting a TV show. And now as a consultant where I try to come in, God, the dreaded consultant world, um, I try to come in and, and just um, represent a perspective, like give, give clients a vantage point, which is honest and not often rooted in data and often optimistic and often about the future, but not in a weird way, you know, not sort of nanobots in our veins or computers taking over the world, but just, you know, how do people buy groceries? And um, yeah, I'm very curious. I like sort of exploring the world and watching what's going on. And I like talking to very different people. I like listening. Actually, the weird thing about podcasts is you have to talk a lot. And not many people realize that often I'm talking so that I can say things so that I can learn from what people are saying. You know, I don't sort of proclaim to be the genius saying all the clever things. I'm just someone that listens. I feel the same way. I mean, that's part of the reason why I started this show is that actually I was having these really, really interesting conversations that were making me think differently about things. And I wanted to hear more of that. And then I wanted other people to be able to listen to them. So sorry to make you talk on the show, but I think we can all learn a lot from what you're saying. (laughs) I loved your intro as well, that you, you sort of went to a place that was less about, well, I worked here and then I worked here. It was much more about what skills you had and what you were passionate about and much more about you as a person and what drives you. And I think that really comes through in your social presence or social network is that you're always sort of balancing what you see, what you observe and what's true, potentially true in the world with what your own perspective on it is and you bring a bit of that, not personality, but your personal self into your reflections of the world. Yeah, it's it's not actually, um, I think more and more when you ask a question or if you frame a point of view that you have that you hold quite delicately, 
people often think you're making some big proclamation and you think you're right and you're trying to sort of sell an idea. And actually, more often than not, I'm sort of exploring things. You know, one of the things I like about LinkedIn versus Twitter is a place where you can start conversations and you can listen to people who know a lot more than you about topics. Whereas in Twitter, people are quite quick to sort of jump on you and say, you know, uh, they, they have a presumption behind the questions that you ask and they assume that you come to it with a particular personality, which you don't. And I think we, we all do better by arguing to understand things rather than to win points. You know, we'd all do better to float theories out there with the intention of, of changing our own opinions on things. And that's not always easy that these days. So. Mm. And on Twitter as well, you need to be pithy and catchy and you start to lose the depth and like you're saying, the real understanding that you're trying to build, not just of your own understanding of a topic, but an understanding that you're trying to build together with other people. Yeah, that's one of the dangerous things, I think, is when you're forced to express things quite sort of concisely, Often things seem more rude than you mean them to be. Often things that are generalizations have to be made so general that they're wrong. And then people love, you know, pointing out how wrong you are because it doesn't apply to them. And it's a very different environment. But um, I I, I use social media to learn as it happens. It seems that people quite like that. And I think that you also, it seems like you use it as a forum to pose counterintuitive ideas and maybe things that are contrary to mainstream thoughts and opinions. And I'm sure that that happens naturally out of your observations, but it's very refreshing for the audience to hear that, particularly when someone is saying something that potentially you're afraid to voice on a platform like that yourself. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like, um, I, I like to understand the degree to which I put things out there, which I am not sure about. And I think, if I remember rightly, the whole reason I started writing was just because I thought everyone was saying stuff that was nonsense. And, <laughs> you know, it started with me thinking, I'm not sure this is true. And then I'd have conversations with people in the pub and they'd be like, yeah, you're right. I don't know, I'm not like this sort of um, spokesperson on behalf of normal people, mm. but I felt sort of compelled to express these opinions or ask these questions. And quite often these days say, oh, you know, you're just saying stuff that everyone else is, is thinking. And that's completely true. There's no sort of genius to what I do. I'm just incredibly surprised that more people aren't saying these things. Mm. People quite often think it's contrarianism. Like they, they presume that... You know, if everyone says that 5G is going to be a big thing, you know, I deliberately think, aha, I'm going to disagree with everyone and say it's shit. And that's not true at all. It's just that um, I'll be someone that is the first to adopt 5G and I'll have spent time traveling around the world working with Huawei to ask experts at Huawei what 5G means and no one's really given me very good answers. <laughs> and then I'll just think, you know, wait a minute, this, um, you know, let's, let's imagine a normal person going through a normal life. How is 5G going to change that? And if you think about that for a really long time, it's quite hard to come up with big things. And then I'll post that as an opinion. And then everyone's like, oh, you know, Mm. contrarianism. Mm. And I'm like, no, it's just a little feeling I have. Yeah. Or you're asking a question or you're probing into something that maybe is not as clear, like the, you know, the, I don't want to bring it up, but I do the metaverse and this, you know, concept around the metaverse that everyone's getting so in love with. It's like, as soon as you poke a question about like, do people actually know what this means? And what it could be and what the bias in it is, then all of a sudden you're a contrarian, but you're actually just digging deeper and you're curious to really more deeply understand the flaws within it, which is a positive thing. Yeah, two things. One, we we work in a really nice industry. I mean, we have amazing jobs. We get to understand people. We get to live in a world where our subject matter surrounds us all day long. 
And it's a real privilege to operate in that situation. And secondly, we really, you know, we love the power of a wonderful answer, but actually the power of a really good question, not necessarily more important, but it's certainly way more important than most people seem to think. The world is full of keynote presentations where there's no Q&A at the end. The best keynote presentation I can imagine seeing is someone talking for 15 minutes and then getting 30 minutes of really hard questions about it. Mm -hmm. And you'd learn probably quite a lot more from the questions than you do from the the answers. I love that. So do you feel like contradicting the status quo or asking challenging questions is a part of what we should be doing, particularly in the business space where there's this, you know, herd mentality and the the bias towards, you know, vehemently agreeing with everybody else and getting very comfortable and complacent. Like, is that our responsibility to ask the hard questions? I mean, the, the short answer is yes. Realistically, I know this sounds quite profound and philosophical, it's not, but you only really establish the boundary of what we know by finding that mark by going over it you know if you're not wrong quite often Mm. then you're not really probing things enough and intentions are the most important thing here you know if you're saying something to get people angry then that's not a very nice way to go about your life if you're saying things because you think that you or other people can learn from the debate and that is your primary intention for it, then that's that's precisely how we need to operate. I think we touched upon it, Paul, but I, I'm sort of staggered by the kind of, I mean, orthodoxy is kind of a strong word, but I'm staggered by the degree to which best practice and assumptions and the rule of thumb um, dominate our industry mm. and how comfortable people are only ever living in a paradigm which is rooted in sort of truisms. Mm. And I think often the real business value is actually unlocked by the people that explore those areas. It's the sort of gray area between business and regulation. The companies like Uber exploits. It's the assumptions that people make about categories that companies like Dyson exploits. Tesla is a business that's basically rooted in the assumption that what other people are doing may not be ambitious enough and there may be a a better way to do things. And I think in a corporate environment, that sort of behavior typically doesn't go down very well. And I don't really understand that. I think people maybe are quite fragile. Maybe there's a sort of vulnerability attached. Maybe people are sort of tribes and they want to be part of the group that shares the most in common. But I, I'm not. I'm not sure why there is a initial, immediate reaction to people who say different things, which is to sort of jump on them a little bit and cast aspersions on them, or think they're difficult, or mm. disinvite them to the meeting. Mm. Yeah, I think people have got quite lazy actually. I really agree with that. I feel like when you do pose counter arguments or you throw up something that goes against what we're all comfortable with, you get almost labeled as either negative or disengaged or provocative for the sake of being inspirational, which is probably the worst one, the one that I hate the most. But I feel like maybe a part of it is the fact that we are so driven by our emotions and that we forget that even inside of the corporate world, people are still very much driven by their own emotions. 
And it's a really great book on this around emotional capitalism, where it's like the, the more that we can agree emotionally together that we're outraged by this, or we don't agree with this together collectively, the more comfortable we feel. Do you feel like emotions run just as rampant in the corporate world? I've, I've never really thought about that, actually. Do you know what? I think everyone's scared. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but I think everyone's yes, scared shitless. Um, <laughs> I think you can um, do better than I that, Shilis. <laughs> Give me time. We'll get that. I forgot that you're Australian, so everything's fine. Um, <laughs> actually, there's a lot of social conformity in Sweden, but there's not a lot of fear. You know, if people lose their job, one, it's quite hard because there's a lot of security built into working contracts. But two, you're not going to die of a simple medical condition because you've lost your health insurance. And you go from a market like Sweden to a market, like a lot of Asian markets are driven by a lot of fear because, again, there's a, there seems to be a high level of conformity and a high need to show alignment and f- saving face and stuff. And then you get to markets like Australia and the UK, which there's a little bit more comfort in my careers. And, but then you come to America. I mean, every single email I ever really got in the last three years, I thought, you're fucking scared. Mm. You know, like you are just running on anxiety all day long because it's another meeting you have to say yes to. It's another process you have to adhere to. It's another meeting that you have to be ready to answer horrible questions about. And I think fear means that we're never going to be creative. Fear means that we don't like our jobs. Fear means that we're, it's really impossible to go against the tribe and it's this sort of vibration of fear mm. that runs through everybody, which makes everyone sing the same song. And I, I don't really understand that because if we work as um, you know nuclear physicists and we make a mistake, that could be a very bad thing and that could lead to millions of deaths around the world. If we work in medicine and we do a trial the wrong way, that could lead to horrible deformities in people for generations. If we make a mistake... Yeah, it might mean that slightly fewer people buy our dog food. Mm-hmm. It might mean that people think our ad is a little bit crap. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea really why we don't wake up every day thinking, oh my God, our job is amazing because it doesn't really matter and it's kind of brilliant. And if we do it really well, it does matter. But there's no reason to be scared. Mm. And we aspire to those sorts of mindsets from outside of the company too. Like we look at innovators and startups and entrepreneurs and we say, oh, they're so bold (laughs) and so courageous. And even I think, Tom, people would look at you and say, well, look at him. He's out there on his own and he's, he's being incredibly courageous with even just expressing your opinion. But then when we try to implement that internally inside of the company, it's rejected. So that's the really funny thing that I can't quite grapple with. So do you have any advice for disruptors from inside of the company? Like how do you how do you manage your own fear? I'm sure that you feel it every once in a while when you're about to post something and you're like, oh shit, I'm gonna get a slap on the wrist for this from someone. How do you counter those feelings? I think the only thing that I have that's different to other people, I think I must be missing some element of my DNA. And I kind of mean this sort of very jokingly because I don't think I'm sort of autistic or something. Maybe I have slight tendencies. But I profoundly like, don't give a shit about anything apart from extreme things. You know, like I never want to cause offense to people. And there are times when I've got a bit angry on Twitter and I've caused, you know, I've, I've been mean-spirited. But by and large, as long as I feel that I come to this stuff with good intentions... 
I really don't care. And that's partly the way I was brought up. Like my mum and dad are quite sort of outlandish characters. I also read a book when I was young called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, which I, I don't think is a groundbreaking book, but I remember, I remember sort of learning a bit about that. You know, we live in an age of great abundance. Courage is um, working in a coal mine. But our worst days, probably the best days that anyone's ever lived on this planet in relative form. So I'm not entirely sure what we're worried about. You know, we should be worried. Maybe we're worried about losing health insurance. Maybe we're worried about getting divorced. Maybe we're worried about going bankrupt. But that's probably not going to happen. I think it's deeply frustrating to me that acting my way or your way is quite risky. I feel like if people approach their careers with these intentions, then actually everybody would immediately see the value of them. And there certainly is an element of risk. But at the same time, if you're client side, you know, there's not a small number of companies out there that need marketers. It's not like by being well-intentioned and asking good questions and pissing off everybody, your career is going to be destroyed forever. I'm very lucky to have got to a place where, in a way, because I gently started to become more provocative, by the time people were giving me jobs towards the end of my career, they were choosing me with full knowledge of what I was about. And therefore, I was extremely lucky. So, so at no point am I giving advice to people to just wake up one day and go rogue. It's, you, you asked me sort of, what should people do? And I think it's extremely hard. And I don't like giving advice because I am the result of lots and lots of things that have happened. And there are, are millions of parallel universes where it really worked out very badly. Not that it's worked out perfectly. And therefore, it's quite easy to just say, oh, just be like me. And I think that's nonsense. But I think everyone should go through a process where, you know, just be a bit honest with yourself, figure out what's important to you. I think the world is full of people who want to get back to their home and ensure that they're there to say goodnight to the kids every night. And career progression is not important other than what it allows you to earn. There are lots of people who are, they don't need to feel that their opinions are heard. And I think that's the majority of people in, in corporate America, certainly. That's why they're in a corporate job. But I think there's also enough room out there for people who are asking these questions sort of slowly, you know, don't don't sort of have like a campaign where you suddenly decide to wake up on a Monday and be a different person. Figure out places where your opinion is most helpful. One of the mistakes I've certainly made is thinking that being right is more important than it is. You know, I had this whole thing a while ago where I was saying, you know, there should be no such thing as a chief digital officer and that. You know, for most companies, social media is a waste of time. And then all of a sudden you're in a room and you realize that half the people there work in social media and, you know, you're not really being that helpful to them. And to go to a digital conference and tell everyone their jobs don't need to exist is not that helpful. So figure out moments where you can be helpful. You mentioned something really early on, actually, which really struck out to me. And that's that people often think you're being negative. And I'm suddenly remembering all these moments where by challenging the brief, people think you're being negative. And often what you're saying is not remotely negative. I remember we once got a brief for a pitch for, um, I think I can say it. it was Amazon. They were asking us how we could monetize the Amazon Echo. And there was this huge pitch, which is all about how can we place ads on the Echo. And I just said, the very worst thing you could ever do is is monetize ads on, on the Echo. Like This is a device which needs to take root in people's lives. It's not that good yet. They need to sell as many of these things as they can. Mm -hmm. And the moment that people think they've been advertised to, they're never going to buy it. <laughs> and I was very quickly disinvited from the pitch process because mm -hmm. one, the client brief was not should we, but how should we? And two, everyone thought that was negative. I don't think 
understanding people and representing their opinion is negative. Yeah. I then came on to say, here are you know twenty five ways they could make money from the Echo, and ways that be helpful for people. But but people had sort of given up on me by that point. It's really interesting what you said at the very start of that, which was that you profoundly don't give a shit. I feel like that's <laughs> that's going to go in the description in your bio description for the show notes. Um, but, yes, but I think that what's and, and in this in this day and age, that'll get me in lots of trouble because everyone's going to be like, "Oh, it's so easy to say that as a sort of tall, blonde, white mm. man that's heterosexual," and it's not like that for me. And there is perhaps loads of truth in that, and perhaps there's no truth in that at all. Perhaps it doesn't matter about anything other than the mm. fact that you're being valuable. So. I really love that you said that though. And I know you've said that on another podcast that I listened to. I found it really, really refreshing and you don't, it feels like you're not allowed to say that. And I have a similar thing as a European blonde hair, blue eyed, white woman is that often when I'm trying to get into a conversation about how much we have progressed, that I get this kind of look of you don't understand because you haven't lived in my shoes. There's this weird thing happening at the moment, particularly in the US that I'd love to get your take on is obviously we know this polarization and division and people just starting fights. But also this like weird thing where people are saying they want to be more open and more inclusive and more thoughtful towards other people, but only with the people within their group. <laughs> do you feel like we're becoming more, actually, do you agree, I should say, that we're getting to a point now where we can't even have a conversation about our differences, let alone try to find some middle ground? It seems that way. And it's horrendous. My really big concern is people have given up on trying to understand things from other people's perspectives. And I don't really understand that, especially in marketing. Like our entire job is about understanding people. You know, if you voted for Trump, let's ask someone why. Let's not be quick to assume that they're racist or quick to assume that they're bigoted. We seem to have this really big thing about opening our industry to different perspectives. And that's absolutely essential because it's ludicrous the degree to which we don't draw upon brilliant people from whatever backgrounds we have. But the one thing we never want to talk about is class. You know, when I went to rural America, everyone was very quick to say, oh, what's it like being surrounded by white trash? That's probably the only, you know, a white sort of um, rural American with perhaps a very different economic reality who's facing real severe problems to do with job losses in the Appalachians. We have no interest whatsoever in sympathizing with their opinion. You know, we, we, our, our approaches towards um, diversity are actually very much based on what photographs well. It's not difficult to see that people are very, very quick to talk about diversity, but not when it comes to neurodiversity, mm -hmm. not when it comes to class, mm -hmm. not when it comes to more general socioeconomic backgrounds and we'd much more happily sit in a meeting with people that support the same sports team as us and that went to similar universities to us and if they look a little bit different then we can cross that box off as well. Yeah it's interesting because you made me think about like why why would that be and I feel like we like simple problems as human beings, you know, we want to be able to have some form of control in what feels like a very out of control world. We're almost trying to say, well, no, it is a problem because if I can define it really simply, then I can feel like I have a problem that I can tackle more easily. But obviously the risk of that is that we start to oversimplify issues. And then, like you said, you, we omit all of the nuance within it, all of the causes and the correlations. 
my really big concern is that we're solving these problems in a very reactive and superficial way. There are really big problems of the world that are linked to diversity, um, and they are true and they are profound and very much real. But the way to solve it, it's to get to grips with how are we in a situation where when you go to events, the people who are speaking are not representative of the whole population. And that goes much, much deeper to do with our desire to hire people who've come from similar backgrounds. If we are really honest, what I have seen, especially recently, is a lot of intellectual laziness. I'm quite a big fan of working in offices sometimes. The number of people I've said, uh, I've seen saying, oh, I hate working in the office. You know, you have to do all that small talk with people. You have to try and get on with people from accounts who are weird. Our jobs, I mean, are to, to talk to people and to listen to people and get on with different people. And that's really what makes us more complete as people. And I think a lot of this is driven by massive laziness. And this is human nature, by the way. Like we're designed to sort of form tribes of people and to have a community that will help us in case a, a mammoth is coming our way. We form bonds with people, and the easiest way to form bonds is to find people that we're most alike. I do it. I've come to Miami, and I've most of, quite a lot of my friends are English. So we all do it. But we've almost become so... Our sort of social muscles have sort of atrophied so much that the idea of recruiting someone that hasn't gone to university you know, and doesn't like American football and sits in a, a meeting and you know, doesn't sort of say the right things, like we've become completely uncomfortable with that idea. Mm-hmm. In my time, I've not really talked about this that much. I don't want to talk about it a lot, but I've, I've helped mentor people from quite challenging backgrounds. And it's very strange when you bring them to the office because people are genuinely quite rude to people that are quite different people that have sort of working class accents or they wear the wrong clothes like you can really see a friction and that's what kind of appalls me actually is that all these people saying the right things I don't think they really mean them quite often they want their lives to be easy and to be around people that don't have send their kids to the same school and stuff like that And I don't know if you've mentored anybody that's older as well but I mean I think you can see that quite prominently with anyone that's over 50 or over 60 in the workplace as they get that kind of exclusionist cultural setback as well. And it's those things that we don't like to talk about. Uh, We like to talk about the fact that Gen Z is going to be 30% of the workforce. Let's cater everything to them (laughs) in the next two years. So one thing I want to touch on, which you said before, which was the intellectual laziness is how that feeds into futurism. So I know you're, you're a futurist. I run Foresight at Mars Wrigley. So one of the things that I think is really important is that we catch our cognitive bias. I find that a lot of the futurists that I see are very much not oversimplifying issues, but they're drawing correlations to things that are, I think, very aligned with their individual core values. Do you feel like that's a part of what we're what we're doing as well in that intellectual laziness? It is, uh, but I do think um, this is sort of human nature. I mean, we do literally see the things we look for. Like everyone's reality is absolutely biased because we're programmed to do this. And that makes it a very difficult challenge to solve because even when we think we're being open-minded and even when we think we're coming to things objectively, there's still an inherent bias and discrimination in the way that we're looking at things. And that is in no way sort of, quote unquote, okay. 
but it is sort of understandable. And it's something that probably requires a lot of effort to change. And it probably means that a big role in companies is recruiting people who are very different. All of their biases will sort of add up and contradict each other. Um, we're incredibly aspirational. You know, if you were to go around a room or the internet and say, you know, what big challenges are there in the world? There's all people talking about quite privileged problems. You know, no one's talking about drinking water in Africa. No one's talking about corruption across the world. You know, if you ask people to do a trends deck for the future, it's full of sort of young people always. You know, there's no there's no sort of trends decks talking about elderly care, really. Mm. There's no um, trends decks that are talking about what would Uber look like in rural America. There's no people working on really exciting apps that could help women's health in parts of the world. We're always sort of focused on a way to sell more sneakers to, you know, kids who live in Brooklyn. <laughs> We're always focused on, you know, self-flying cars to help people get between meetings more quickly, mm-hmm. Alexa skills to help order some food so we don't need to leave the house, you know, which is incredibly expensive. And I, I think we're doing ourselves and the world a great disservice, actually, because we are, by and large, in this industry, quite unusual people. And the problems we have, by and large, are not the biggest problems, nor the most interesting ones. So. Nor the most representative, going back to what you were saying before, where, yes. like, and I know you've been posting a little bit about the future of work and remote work and how it could work, how it could not work so well based on trial and error at the moment. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, we hear so much is like, we're moving towards remote work. Yes. Like 25% of us, most, most <laughs> yes. of us are still very much, yes. you know, offering care inside of a hospital or, you know, cleaning toilets. So it's this whole comfortable idea of talking to ourselves. What I find really extraordinary about these conversations, it perplexes me so much. I could write a post on LinkedIn right now talking about how we need to be more thoughtful about the fact that working from home doesn't work for everybody. And it will be full of people saying, I've been working from home for 15 years and it's great. There'll be a sort of trends consultant. And I'm thinking, how many trends consultants are there? There's someone else, oh, I've got a team of people that work in Estonia and it's great. You know, what do you do? I'll run like a small remote working software company. People that are car mechanics, people that are shop workers, people who work for local government, people who are accountants, people who are architects, people who are lawyers, people who work in construction, people that work as actuarians, people that work in data centers. Like we forget about 75% of the population just like that. And it's one thing to express a view, which is from my perspective, the people I know won't like this, but it's another thing to be sort of completely defiant about the fact that your reality is entirely different to other people's. Unusually, we've actually stopped thinking about young people. Like we've, we've stopped thinking about the fact it may well be wonderful for you as a 46 year old who's just set up your small business to work from home all the time. And that's great. I'm very happy for you. But the last sort of um, 20-ish years that you've been working, you've learned from people around you. You've had enough money coming in to have a sense of stability. You've made friends at work. You've built a network of people at work. You've learned really difficult to grasp social skills to you know, how do you greet the global CEO when they come in the morning by looking at how other people do? You've learned so much and you've completely forgotten like what it's like to be, you know, a 16-year-old just going into your first job, forgotten what it's like to have a career break because you've had kids and then come back to work again. You've forgotten what it's like to 
work in an environment where everything's so secure that you can't possibly be in different places. Like everyone's forgotten everything. And it, it kind of goes back to that hypothetical post that you had <laughs> before, I think, where, uh, and actually a real post that you had the other day where you were talking about, you know, go and don't speak to the media, don't go and read news reports, go and speak to your Uber driver and, and go and speak to real people and connect yourself with the real human beings that you're trying to design products and solutions for. Yeah, I kind of, um, I don't like how things like that sound when they're read back. Cause it sounds like I'm this sort of smug person, you know, telling people how to live their lives. That oh, everybody, you know, oxygen's amazing to breathe. You should breathe. <laughs> that's just LinkedIn, though. I think that's how everybody comes across on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> no, I guess it's, just, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't really understand how it is that people listen to me. Um, I don't really understand how it is that, that everyone isn't just taking this as obvious. Like, I don't understand why it's obvious that, you know, opportunity is not very well spread, but talent is. That doesn't seem like a particularly outlandish thing to say, but you say that to people and everyone's like, oh, that's so profound. I don't understand, you know, think about what it's like to be in other people's positions. Oh, my God, that's amazing. He's, he has spoken. So it seems really embarrassing. Our job is to understand people look at people, go to Brit Mall in a shitty part of town, go to a train station, sit on a Greyhound bus. Like that is our job. It's a really nice job. Yeah, definitely agree. And I think it, it's very linked into what you mentioned at the start of the conversation about how actually you are an optimist. And so I feel like, you know, everything that you're saying has this positive intention and will to champion people and to champion positive change in the world. And I know I'm like making you probably like laddering it up and, and making you cringe a little bit. This is where you can eye roll, but I feel like there's a, a really positive, yeah. <laughs> there's a really positive aspect to contrarianism even, or counterintuitive thinking or expressing, um, you know, something that might seem really obvious, but is just not in common conversation enough, which is incredibly optimistic, right? Because you're you're always pulling it into like, let's think more deeply about things. Let's really understand people. Like the consumer is our boss. We often say that, but we, you know, very rarely actually practice it in our day-to-day lives. I don't know if this is a, a thing, but there's almost like a negativity bias. And you can almost take anything that I've sort of said, you know, over the last few years that people noticed. And you can see how people can interpret it as a miserable, you know, so when I talk about the fact that these are not historically that fast changing times, that actually, you know, we lived in a period in the 1900s where the car was invented, skyscrapers proliferated, the telephone spread across the world, and everything was very different very quickly. You know, the advent of TV was a huge social thing. Even the bicycle was one of these things that everyone thought when it invent- was invented that it was going to make women go crazy. And I don't think we live in a very fast-changing time. I, I look at the last 10 years, and if we take out the pandemic and call that a sort of um, an situation, very, very little has changed in the last 10 years, very, very little. And if you say something like that, people take that as quite a negative thing. Like People think I'm sort of complaining. People think I'm sort of criticizing six or seven billion people for not doing enough. And I'm actually saying that as a way to be reassuring, you know, back to the point we were talking about before about fear. I think everyone is going about their jobs with this sense that they're missing a trick, that there's a technology happening that they may miss out on. There's a sort of new way that people are behaving, which they have to respond very quickly to. And that puts us in a very defensive situation. And I think by saying things are not changing that fast, I'm just trying to be reassuring. 
And I'm trying to say, find the two or three things that are very different. You know, e-commerce has quite profound impacts on a lot of companies. And then focus on those. But no, people are very quick to take that as a negative thing. Everything I say is actually normally rooted in an incredible sense of optimism for the future, an incredible love of human ingenuity, like a really deep sense that people are, by and large, wonderful and well-intentioned. And then I contrast that with how really stupid most business meetings feel, how awful many decisions are made, how terrible a lot of the governance and governments in the world are. And I get quite frustrated. And I think people are quite quick to latch on to the emotion that comes from that frustration and think of it as negativity. But it's actually saying, you know, what if what if we had a really good leader? What if we had what if we woke up in, in lots of countries and there were fantastic leaders that were listening to people and then creating policies that can make things better? What if all of the conversations about climate change were not oh my God, we're fucked, we have to stop consuming. But hey, let's look at the implications of all this and figure out a way to mitigate the damage. And let's look at some of the things that could happen that could even be optimistic and then figure out a way to maximize those. But if you say things like that, everyone's, you know, that would be a disastrous thing to tweet out, you know, think about the good things that can happen because of climate change. That would be sort of career ending if it was just a tweet. But it's an interesting brief to work on. It's a very interesting brief to work on. And I think good ideas and progress only ever comes from an optimistic perspective. That doesn't mean we should be blinded to reality, Mm. but we can also be proud about what we've accomplished so far as well. Yeah, definitely. And therefore have confidence in the, like you said, human ingenuity to help solve future problems. I think also your... um, Sometimes you're seen as being not you, but people are seen as being negative when they show a lot of passion and they show a lot of bravery and boldness. And I think that's something that you you really demonstrate. And it's definitely something that I think more of us should aspire to. So this whole conversation has been amazing. I could keep talking to you for hours and hours. You're probably like, I gotta, I gotta get this chick off the phone. <laughs> get out, get out of here. She's made me get into some contentious issues, but it was amazing. I have one last question for you, Tom. What is something that you do to look outside and get yourself outside of your comfort zone? I, I don't know. I just try to observe. I just try to live a bit. I like um, to sort of change um, routines. And um, I know we're all quite sort of blinkered. I think in our need to have quite comfortable, tidy lives, we fit into routines. I think every little thing that we can do to change that routine. You know, I imagine many people live a sort of 40-minute um, commute to work. Imagine in America, if you wanted to take public transport, it would probably take an hour and a half and it would be quite unpleasant in many places. And it involve waiting for a bus for an indeterminate amount of time because there's no real-time transit information in, you know, sort of less attractive parts of town. Uh, maybe one day think about getting on the bus. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe one day, you know, get on a different bus and get off a little bit early and walk to work. Maybe go to a different store to the one you normally shop in, maybe go to a really luxurious shopping mall and see what it is like to be uncomfortable because luxury stores make you feel terrified to go in. I don't know, do stuff. Yeah, do do stuff that puts you outside of your comfort zone. I love that incredibly thought-provoking conversation and an absolute joy and an honour to have you on the show, Tom. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks very much for the conversation. It's been fun. Hey. 
hey, I promised I'd bring you fresh perspectives and Tom is truly an original thinker. Maybe you don't agree with everything he said, I don't always, but I value and appreciate that he made me think. Think about things from a new light, think about things more critically, think for myself. If the chat made you think, I hope you share it and tune in next time. Thanks for listening and keep looking outside.